Tiramisu. What is tiramisu? You'll find out. Well, what is it? You'll see. Some woman is going to want me to do it to her, and I'm not going to know what it is. You'll love it. Oh, this is going to be tough. Tough, tough. This is going to be much tougher than I thought it was going to be. Hello, and welcome to You Should See the Other Guy, the podcast where we watch a romantic comedy and then discuss why the members of a love triangle, quadrangle, any sort of situation in which a choice between romantic partners must be made, made, in fact, the wrong choice. I am Jennifer. I'm Samantha. And I'm Sadie. And today we are going to be talking about one of my personal favorite rom-coms period, but also my favorite Nora Ephron movie, Sleepless in Seattle, 1993, baby. <laughs> Sadie, is that the year you were born? No. I you wasn't were born even in like 97 yet. or something. Oh, Jesus. I can't do <laughs> math. Okay. <laughs> in my head. This predates me. That terrifies with me. With my youthful glow. <laughs> Okay, so I fought for the right to summarize this week because I love this movie so much. And this is a really interesting rom-com because the characters don't really meet until essentially the last five minutes of the movie. So as I'm sure we will touch on a lot more throughout this podcast episode, it's not much of a rom-com in the traditional sense, but rather it's about these two people on opposite sides of the country wanting more magic in their life, either again or for the first time. So it opens with Tom Hanks's character, Sam, a Chicago architect who has just lost his wife, and now he's a single dad to his eight-year-old son, Jonah. And because Chicago reminds him so much of his wife, Maggie, he decides to just randomly uproot and move to Seattle, which I feel like would be a wild, I mean, I'm no child psychologist, seems like a wild move in, in reality, but whatever, he did it, and Jonah's <laughs> fine. Um <laughs> Meanwhile, in Baltimore, Annie, played by Meg Ryan, the wonderful Meg Ryan, is a Baltimore Sun reporter with a perfectly lovely fiancé named Walter, a.k.a. Bill Pullman. Annie is content with Walter. She's content with their life. She's content with his sleep apnea machine, etc., etc. Until on the drive home Christmas Eve, she hears Jonah on air with a national radio show. And eventually Sam comes on the air as well. As he talks about Maggie and the love that they had, Annie becomes completely entranced, driving through the snow with tears in her eyes as she listens to this random man on the radio, which is something I'm sure we've all done, question mark? So later, jazzed up by her friend Rosie O'Donnell, who's named Becky in the movie, but that's irrelevant. Yeah. (laughs) Paired with the intensely romantic movie and affair to remember, she's riding the high of affair to remember. Annie writes to Sam and asks her to meet or asks him to meet her on the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day. Amongst other things that happen around this same point in the movie, Annie uses Baltimore Sun resources to track Sam down and hire a PI to stalk him. (laughs) 
<laughs> and meanwhile, at this point, Sam has decided to try to get back out into the dating pool, but he's rusty. And there's this really, really great scene, possibly one of my favorite scenes in the movie, where Sam is talking to his friend Jay about the modern dating scene. And Sam asks him, what is tiramisu? And yes. Jay replies, you'll find out. To which Sam responds, some woman is going to want me to do it to her and I'm not going to know what it is. <laughs> which is just such a Nora Ephron dialogue to put in. I love it so much. Iconic. So regardless, Sam begins dating the very well-meaning but also very chafing Victoria, whom Jonah mm, a absolutely- A matter of opinion on that adjective. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, whom Jonah absolutely hates. Jonah, who has read Annie's letter, the letter has come, Jonah has opened it. He is pushing for the Empire State Building idea. He has really become attached to this idea of Annie, whereas Sam is entirely resistant. On Annie's side, in an absolutely wild move, she actually flies to Seattle, again, on Baltimore Sun Resources, <laughs> unknowingly being seen by Sam when she gets off the airplane. Because Sam has just seen Victoria offer a business trip, and he is entranced when he sees Annie come off the plane in her perfectly coiffed bangs and her effortlessly flowing hair. But much like two ships in the night, they pass without speaking. Then Annie actually does go to Sam's house, which again, wild. Um, but she she chickens out at the last minute, though they briefly see each other again. Then she flies home to Baltimore, having effectively done nothing. And just as a reminder, just a little mild stalking. <laughs> she still has a fiance at this point. So there's a suspension of disbelief going on there. Um, and then in an even wilder move, Annie does go to New York on Valentine's Day, dot, 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 with Walter. <laughs> but as they're having dinner, she realizes she wants more. She wants to chase this man slash dream that she's had since Christmas Eve and take a chance, like in an affair to remember. So... She breaks it off with Walter. It's a very amicable split. Poor Walter. And she goes to the Empire State Building, which would have been without Sam if it hadn't been for the fact that Jonah and Jonah's also eight-year-old friend Jessica managed to buy a plane ticket and fly Jonah by himself. He's eight across the country to New York, which, as you might expect, prompts Sam to have an aneurysm and scramble across the country <laughs> after him. So in the glorious climax of the movie, you're on the Empire State Building with Annie. You think that she has missed them because they've already left. But then Jonah and Sam come back out onto the roof to look for Jonah's bear. And there is Annie holding the bear in question. It's you, Sam says. It's me, Annie replies. They walk into the elevator, hand in hand, and Annie says, it's nice to meet you. And scene. A perfect last line, even though it requires immense suspension of disbelief. A very well-written <laughs> moment. I'm still just over here processing the fact that you weren't born when this movie came out. <laughs> 
I keep trying to make your year of birth earlier in my head that when I think about it, I'm like, oh, like, you know, because if I see the numbers in front of me, I actually am much better at math than my statements on this podcast would suggest. But yeah, like Sadie wouldn't be around for almost four years. Sadie, even though you're younger than us, you will die first. And then I won't want to replace you as a podcast co-host. But Jen will be like, Samantha, we have to find a new podcast co-host. And I'll be like, it's just not the same without her. You know, every day we just come on this podcast and we breathe in and we breathe out and we don't say any words. Our podcast has just become breathing, just us breathing, but I'm not going to replace her. In six months from now, when I get inevitably hit by a bus as I try to jaywalk across four lanes of traffic, (laughs) it's nice to know that I won't be replaced. Or alternatively, when I stand out in the middle of the street after I have stalked a man across the country and I'm now standing in the street in front of his house. (laughs) (laughs) This movie does not promote healthy forms of attachment. I can just <laughs> say that. What, so, Sadie, this is one of your favorites, right? Why yeah. is it so beloved for you? And then I want to hear, Jen, Jen, was this first time for you? First time, baby. Oh, no. Okay, I actually want to hear Jen first. <laughs> I need to hear Jen first. Okay. Well, this one was similar, actually, to While You Were Sleeping, which I have always gotten confused with this one, having never seen either of them prior to this year for the purposes of this podcast. And they both have stuff about sleeping in the title. And they both have Bill Pullman, who I always get confused for Bill Paxton in them. So anyway... Another point of similarity between these two films is that the behavior of the heroine like sounds absolutely indefensible and is wild, as Sadie would say, and not good as an example or whatnot. But it was presented in a strangely wholesome fashion in the movie. And Mm -hmm. the actress had really big, bright eyes. And so it came across much less creepy than it could have otherwise. Like Julia Roberts, I guess, just comes across as like way more canny and less winsome than either Sandra Bullock in While You Were Sleeping or Meg Ryan in Sleepless in Seattle. And therefore, My Best Friend's Wedding she just came off like a a potential murderess. But (laughs) this one was strangely a little uh, more wholesome, even though I was thinking at like every time she used the Baltimore Sun resources to uh, uh, do espionage upon and stalk a man across the country, I was really ready to ask you guys about typical journalistic ethics. Oh, Oh I mean... (laughs) (laughs) We have to just ta- like. we have to just table that indefinitely. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't think that in real life you should allow your eight-year-old necessarily to choose your romantic partner for you. And I do think that that kid was a real asshole to Victoria who did nothing to deserve it. Yeah. Yes. And yes, I will talk more about Victoria later in the podcast, but... Jonah's line to Victoria of, I never saw anybody cook potatoes that way is like the... (laughs) Worst neg slash what a underhanded fucking compliment. Cunt. Like that kid is <laughs> gonna grow up. Like he's gonna be on RuPaul's Drag Race season, whatever that would be. I guess honestly, he'd be kind of an old queen. I guess by the time the show even came out, but like he is gonna win 
the library is open mini challenge. <laughs> yeah, Jonah is a jerk. I like that we're starting out this podcast by just condemning the child in this movie. The sweet, <laughs> universally beloved child character in Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> He is an asshole. I mean, he's yeah. eight, so like, you know, he's got All some eight year stuff to iron are, out. Her kind of assholes. God, but. you know who else, like, who, who rules the world in this movie is his little also presumably around the age of eight friend, Jessica. Like, that kid and her acronyms for phrases got his ass on a plane to New York. He couldn't have done that on his own. Yeah, and all the cabbies and people he encounters along the way are not alarmed by a child traveling alone. They're just weirdly <laughs> charmed by it they're like oh where are you going chief like uh i'll take you anywhere you need 1991 how old was let's see in 1991 i would have been six this is 1993 so, so you would oh, you would have also okay. been eight i thought i would have been eight i would have been jonah's age in this movie <laughs> Would I have done this to my father if my mother had tragically passed a year and a half earlier? Oh my God, that was the one thing that I could not suspend my disbelief on though in this movie was when the child calls this radio station, gets put on air with no parental approval or whatever. And then they like talk the child into putting the parent on the air with no warning and start asking him tons of invasive questions about his wife's death and uh anyway the radio host is like so how long has it been since your wife passed and he's like tom hanks is like oh it's been about a year and a half now and the radio host is like oh have you dated anybody else since and he's like no and she's like why not and i was like oh my god like a year and a half the vast gulf of time of spousal death you know why is this absolute freak of nature not completely over losing his wife and not back out there on the dating game like you that know, detail though, got me i will say <laughs> some of these like late night talk show esque people like delilah Etc. I can't think of any more. I feel like they would definitely do this kind of thing, though, and have done this kind of thing. <laughs> like, they're always so strangely invasive with their call-ins. <laughs> the hypocrisy, though, of Meg Ryan to be, like, condemning the ethics of Dr. Martha Fieldstone, or whatever her name is, Marsha, Martha, while her own journalistic ethics are just That's even more the hilarity. <laughs> That's the hilarity of it all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this movie, I think we've established by now, does require a lot of suspension of disbelief. It's not my first time viewing... I think my maybe my third, maybe my fourth, but I, I'm totally with Jen on it's proof that charismatic actors in some really sharp writing can cover an immense amount of sins. And that's this movie just like is built on the strength of an incredible screenplay. Like the writing in this movie is phenomenal and sharp. It's cutesy and heightened when it needs to be. It's naturalistic when it needs to be naturalistic. It's just really well written. And that's yeah. such a good point. It was the it was the friend interactions that made it feel at all believable. It was the Meg Ryan Rosie O'Donnell friendship and the Tom Hanks and whoever the hell his friend was. Rob Reiner. Oh, okay. 
I'm sorry. I was also working on a craft project at the same time I was watching this movie and I didn't look at Rob Reiner's face very much, but I listened to his words. Yeah, I could watch a whole movie of them just like getting oysters together in Pike Place. Like, sign me up. Yeah, that was that was I actually I have several, several points of why I love this movie so much. Yes, I'm Um, excited. Go. (laughs) So and first first on the list is related to back what you said, the importance of friendship and these numerous little quick witty friend scenes just peppered throughout and i think that those are very signature efron little scenes like i love how she always makes sure to introduce these really fun quirky friends who are really integral to the characters themselves and like talking out everything so i love that i love the friendship scenes in these in this movie and then another reason that i really like it is how dreamy it is it, it 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 dives into this fantasy, right, of like escaping the difficulties of modern dating in favor of something cosmic and compelling, you know, like how wonderful would it be to just like hear some person on the radio and be like, wow, this is the love of my life. And then you write to them and then they meet you at the Empire State Building. And then you're just like, come on, let's go back to the hotel or let's go home, you know, like one, like... It's just so fantastical. It would never happen in real life, but that's part of why I love it. Let's see. Another reason that I really like it is it explores this like difference between contentment and joy in Annie's character, which we will definitely get into in relationship to Walter. But like Annie is perfectly content with Walter, but she wants that like she wants more. Like she wants more than just like being content with her lot in life and like the person that she's ended up with. Like she can't, she's with this perfectly wonderful person, but she can't stop thinking about this person she heard on the radio. And then the final reason why I love it is why some people hate it. And it, it, it almost feels like a prequel rom-com, you know, like, like a, a com rom, (laughs) right? Like where you've, you've seen the two hour long meet cute, And then the romance is on the other end of the credits. So you don't really get to see Sam and Annie interacting. But to me, that's not really the point. It's more about the other things that I just said that I'm not going to (laughs) repeat. Yeah, it felt like a writing exercise, right? Where it's like, okay, try to write a rom-com where your characters don't meet until the end credits and then nor Efron did it and this is the exact amount of suspension of disbelief that premise would require but <laughs> because she's a brilliant screenwriter she kind of pulled it off like it yeah it feels like some weird challenge she uh, set for herself <laughs> I kind of wish, though, you could take the friend interactions from this and the Tom Hanks make Ryan dynamic from You've Got Mail and kind of like meld it all together into one movie. You can kind of get the same effect from just like back to back marathoning these films. But I feel like each of them has has these pieces that I would love to combine into some, you know, Frankenstein monster rom-com. Yes. And also make Ryan's just her whole vibe in this movie, like her hair and her fashion. It's just, it's so good. Like whenever I watch You've Got Mail, which I will concede it when we're not talking about You've Got Mail in this episode, but I will concede that You've Got Mail has the better 
romance purely because they meet multiple times <laughs> in You've Got Mail. Um, but whenever I watch that movie, I can't help but think like, I wish that Meg Ryan had that like dreamy quality that she has in Sleepless in Seattle with like the really long hair and the oversized turtlenecks and the bulky white socks. And it's just so good. No one has ever looked that good coming off of a cross country flight as Annie did (laughs) fictionally, I should point out in this movie. She just looks like she has not been trapped in a tin can flying through the sky for five hours. She looks like she's just like totally refreshed. It was the emotional high of mishearing a stranger and admitting making a terrible lie to your fiance, I guess. It just gave her that glow, you know? The stranger was like, oh, don't you hate flying? And Meg Ryan, Annie, thinks that she said, don't you hate lying? And is like... (laughs) Yes, I just told a terrible one to my fiance. Don't do you think every lie is a betrayal? And I was like, oh man, I thought I was like the queen of oversharing awkward things to random public strangers, but Annie <laughs> has got me beat here right here. That was one of her least likable moments for me, was the plane. <laughs> and a nice segue into the fact that Annie is terrifying. And the fact that Tom Hanks takes her hand without knowing a thing about her, also knowing his son's like emotional investment in their relationship, like just wild, fully unhinged, a decision with potentially catastrophic consequences. (laughs) And I cannot support it. I, I love this movie. I love so many things about it. I can't support almost any choice any character makes. <laughs> Can, I What you just said, it makes me realize that this movie kind of reminds me of Moonstruck. I feel like they have similar energies into like just stuff happens in the movie and you're like, this is like objectively wild. Like this is... <laughs> Like, none of the decisions that these characters make are things that any rational person would make, but it somehow works. It's sort of, yeah, it's like magical realism or something, because... Yes. We do get a little touch of magical realism with yet another rom-com scene of, like, a character seeing a full-on, like, apparition of their dead partner, which, you know, we've established... (laughs) I guess works in the language of cinema, but when you abstract it out and you're like, wait, are you actually seeing this? Because maybe you're not ready to date again yet. Again, in baffling parental choices, Tom Hanks tells his asshole little kid (laughs) that he's not sure if there is an afterlife and his dead mother exists in it because Tom Hanks still has dreams about her and talks to her. So maybe there is no afterlife beyond that of his own mind. Yeah, very solipsistic of Tom Hanks to think. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't believe in God, but then I dreamed my dead wife. So if it's happening to me, I guess there must be some other plane of existence besides mortality. (laughs) The other just frankly bizarre parental choice that I have got to call out Tom Hanks for in this movie is when he is deluged with hundreds of fan letters of women who want to hook up with him after hearing him say some honestly rather generic pla- 
platitudes about his late wife on the radio, but delivered with Tom Hanks charm. So you kind of got to hand it to him there. Only apparently one of them is dressed, even though the kids said his name on the radio, not to Sam and Jonah, but to Sam and son. And Tom Hanks hands this unopened letter from a stranger who presumably wants to bone down on Tom Hanks to his eight-year-old to open and read unsupervised before he himself looks at it. Yeah, guaranteed some of those <laughs> envelopes contain underwear, you know, like <laughs> dirty underwear. <laughs> Just like the whole character of Jonah is also a suspension of disbelief because yeah. he's like, I, I don't even have to say it. <laughs> like, I mean... <laughs> Like, he doesn't know where half of the states in the United States are, but he somehow manages to fly across the country. <laughs> well, he's got a criminal mastermind booking his <laughs> itinerary for him. Jessica! You know that Jessica a becomes a hacktivist in her okay. adult life. Like you Also, know. I... I've got to say, though, again, the genius of Nora Ephron, every Jessica I know is just an astoundingly capable person. And, you know, like she called it an eight-year-old Jessica, probably my friend Jessica when we were both eight in like, you know, second going into third grade probably could have booked me that flight if I would have wanted it, but I would not have thought to ask. What if Jonah was an apparition too? Do you think like (laughs) at the end of the movie, he just floats away? What about Harold, the teddy bear? <laughs> it's Tom Hanks's childhood teddy bear. We we can Fight Club this movie. We can, I don't know why I want to make Sleepless in Seattle more like Fight Club, but for some reason it would make more sense to me if more characters were dead or the non-existent. Vi- <laughs> the Venn diagram of Samantha and then like film bros that I've put it's like merging. Yeah, it's the handshake emoji and we agree on making sleepless in Seattle more like Fight Club. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. I can't believe Samantha and I haven't watched Fight Club together. In fact, when, you know, COVID is over someday in 15 years and the three of us get to meet up in person, we need to do a watch of Fight Club together. <laughs> It's it's still a fun watch just for like David Fincher's direction. It's like terrifying what it became culturally, but uh it's <laughs> it's a well-made film. He didn't know. He didn't he didn't know what he was creating. He just had to practice to make a perfect film, Zodiac, and this is my first Zodiac <laughs> plug on the podcast and Oh damn, you saved it till episode 30, Samantha. <laughs> Zodiac is one of the greatest movies ever made. <laughs> I know that this isn't the time or place, but also what is the be- what is the time and place? <laughs> Since we're talking about cosmic things. <laughs> I was just thinking about if we could you should you should see the other guy Zodiac and uh, <laughs> my brain went down some dark pathways. <laughs> You should have killed the other people on the highway, Zodiac Killer. (laughs) Um, Okay, okay. So, Samantha, I feel like you have some really strong opinions about her dumping Walter. Oh, you can sense this, can you? I can sense this in your soul. Walter. Walter is such a Capricorn. He's amazing. They can give Walter 
any food allergy they want to. They can make him as particular as they want to. They can make him as doofy as they want to. He will still be hotter than Tom Hanks's character any day of the week. I think it's just a testament to the amount of character assassination they have to do to him to make you not scream at the screen when she decides to go to the Empire State Building instead of continue having what looks like a very nice, possibly, you know, reshoring up their engagement level dinner on a New York City skyscraper. He, he's a man who can dance with you while he talks with you about your wedding registry. Like, I don't know. He's our dream man, but... (laughs) Yes. Walter is an astonishingly effective mismatcher of patterns in his tie and shirt and jacket. It looks so good. Walter, again, like, you know, and I guess that this this actually might have been one of the movies that set that up as a thing. But I do dislike enormously in especially movies that are coming out now when we all should know better that set up legitimate food allergies as being picky or, you know, a cause for somebody not being desirable is not great. However, to Nora Ephron's credit, when Meg Ryan finally did break up with Walter, she didn't say anything specifically bad about him. It was just that she wasn't vibing it. She was vibing a complete stranger across the country that she stalked. But yes, and both this and You've Got Mail have partners who react unbelievably well to just like being dumped for strangers. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. He's Why just like, oh, no, I understand. Tell him about the, you know, he gave her the perfect opening shortly before that, where he said she had been distant and strange and, but he felt like she was, she was coming back to him. And she's like, oh yeah. But no, then they go to a romantic dinner on Valentine's day after he gifts her his mother's like engagement ring that he had resized to fit her finger. And then not only does she dump him, she tells him that she's dumping him because she fell in love with a stranger on the radio on the night that she had told her family that she was engaged to him. Yeah. That, that was too much detail. Shitty. <laughs> <laughs> like what the fuck? That would be enough to even weigh down Walter's spirit. He seems just genuinely happy to be alive in a way that Annie is not, you know? He seems even though he's, is he on a sleep apnea machine or he has to sleep with like a a, de- a humidifier constantly blaring or something like that. You know, he like, you he's know, got all, it's implied he's got all these neuroses and maladies and yet he likes being alive and he likes being in love way more than Annie seems to enjoy it. Who's just waiting for some magic unicorn to fall out of the sky. I fell in love with Walter in the moment when Annie was weirdly hiding in a closet with the radio to try to not be a relatable by him. (laughs) Yet another relatable scene. Like, girl, you could have come up with a way better lie if you would have just been standing there listening to it in the kitchen and he had caught you that way than in the closet with the phone cord at the time when phones had to be corded to the wall, dragging it behind you. But I have recorded was- <laughs> quite a few of these podcast episodes in my closet that I'm looking at right now. 
<laughs> and I feel like if one of my roommates opened up the closet door, I would scream. <laughs> <laughs> but you're recording a podcast. You're not having an inexplicable crush on a stranger's voice from, well, no, it was, it was the kid who was talking then. It wasn't even Sam. But anyway, yeah, obviously you would scream if you were surprised in the closet, even if you were hiding in the closet for probably well. especially if you were hiding in the closet for somewhat nefarious reasons. But Walter, beautiful soul Walter, just cheerfully opens the door and instead of asking her what the fuck she is doing in the closet, clutching the large radio with the phone held up to her ear, just says something like, aha, it's Miss Scarlet in the closet with the radio. And moved along, yeah, with his life. And she was like bummed out, I think, that they went to bed with his sleep apnea machine, you know, instead of having sex earlier that night. But a bitch didn't even try to initiate herself. So yeah, Walter, Walter, Walter was wronged. I agree. And I agree with what our listener Andrew tweeted when we said Walter was wrong. Andrew said two words, he escaped. I think <laughs> I think she should have chosen Walter, but if she didn't want to choose Walter, I'm so glad that he steered clear. Sadie, are you a Walter Stan? Can you stand? Oh my God. I, I can't it again. I You've done it again, Samantha. This is my Um, new favorite Samantha move of this podcast. I'll never, (laughs) ever remember. I, so it's one of those things where it's like, objectively, the concept of, of leaving behind Walter, who is not a boring guy. He's not mean to her in any way. It's not like he drags her down in any way or stop wants, you know, wants to stop her from continuing to be a reporter and doing all the wonderful things that she's wanting to do, I'm assuming. So she, the thought of just leaving that person behind for someone that you don't know, objectively, I could never, like, I don't understand it. But it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I feel as though she is more suited to Sam just because Walter's, I don't want to say too good for her, but he's too well, she said too it. Good for her. Da- yeah, I mean, <laughs> she she's too he's too stable and supportive and I think that the more caustic side of Sam is something that she would really connect with. Again, she doesn't know that he has that caustic side because she's never talked to him. But yeah, I Walter objectively wonderful guy. You'd be lucky to to end up with Walter or someone like Walter. And it kind of my my issue with it overall like on from a philosophical romantic kind of perspective is I feel like the movie sort of promotes maybe the unhealthy notion that like love has to feel like, you know, fireworks and sparks, like, you know, and it's just like, she's gonna get with Sam and move into his little houseboat that now costs $2 million, by the way, is the last amount that that houseboat sold for (laughs) here in our fair hamlet of Seattle. And anyway, so she's gonna marry him. And then she's gonna be like, Oh, you know, we met on the Empire State Building, but that was so long ago, I just need a feeling of magic. And Annie is just gonna lily pad hop from person to person who gives her some feeling of spontaneity and spark. 
And like, I think a good meet cute or a good little coincidence, it helps, right? It's a nice thing to have with a love story. I have a meet cute of my own that I love, but that's not what's going to like make or break your relationship. And I feel like this movie just kind of is indulging a little too much in that signs from the universe kind of bullshit. I think that maybe the problem is it doesn't necessarily make it super crystal clear enough. And and honestly, I'm not even knocking this movie on its own for that as much as I am like all movies for being guilty of this. But that Annie was clearly uncomfortable already. Like she, she really didn't feel that Walter was the match, but she was trying to talk herself into it. And so yeah. she was grasping it absolutely outlandish and inappropriate signs for it not being the thing when really she was just trying to justify to herself that she wanted out that this wasn't it It, it's not so much that it's that it's Sam, but it's more so just that it's not Walter, you mm, know? Yeah. yeah, I feel like there's a medium, though, between, uh, you know, <laughs> feeling like you're settling or like David Hyde Pierce's, like, uh, you know, marriage that appears to be based on no affection at all. But it's more just like a, a pact between nations. David Hyde Pierce being like, I'm gay, but I'm a middle-aged man, and it was the 70s when I agreed to marry this woman. (laughs) (laughs) You have found the untold story of Sleepless in Seattle. That can be in its sequel, because we've established that it's more of a prequel than a sequel. (sighs) Yeah, I just, um, yeah, I guess, like, you know, Sleepless in Seattle is not unique. I'm not, like, blaming all of that on Sleepless in Seattle. I'm just, um, rom-coms in general don't always seem to grasp the, the love is, is part magic, but it's also a big part work, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in so many, and, like, this movie, again, the, the allergies, I don't like that very much being used as a, but so many movies are guilty of showing just instance of mundanity as being proof that the love isn't real. Yes. And like it's you like, still have to live life. Like <laughs> what life do you think is, is going to happen when you're of the around? Time. Yeah. Another person for 24 hours a fucking day or, you know, like, yeah, a lot of the times both of you are going to be looking at your phone like while you're riding an elevator. But <laughs> that one's from uh, the the beginning of The Lovebirds, which also I watched last week. Oh, yeah. Nora Ephron does this and You've Got Mail, too. She relies very much on the trope of showing an established couple, like, sleeping together in, like, a, a kind of too small for them bed uh, as, like, a, oh, God, can you believe the, like, miserable drudgery that, you know, our plucky protagonist has fallen into? She's with a boyfriend. <laughs> she lives in the same apartment. Oh, can you imagine? And it's like she's just going to go sleep on, you know, Tom Hanks's hammock in his little <laughs> houseboat. Like, like, what kind of wild sex are they going to have with creepy little Jonah trying to spy on him, you know? You know you can hear everything in that houseboat, too. Like That houseboat every- <laughs> would rock on the water if you got any significant motion going. Uh, yeah. 
I mean, I just like, I want to imagine, again, it's like 1993 feels like a totally different universe than our current broken reality. But I just feel like, how do you know that Annie isn't a flat earther or something when you take her hand and get into the (laughs) elevator? It feels like today, there are a million things she could say, like before the elevator even reaches the ground floor, where Tom Hanks could have like an I've made a huge mistake moment. Like she could be a QAnoner. She could be yeah. like all sorts of things. I was thinking about that too on my rewatch. Like when he takes her hand and they're walking toward the elevator, I was like, damn, like I, I feel like the stakes are the stakes just so much higher now. I feel like in the 80s and 90s, it just felt a little bit more common to kind of brush different things under the rug. Like you're like, oh, this person does this, but it's okay, because I like the way that they make spaghetti. You know, like, uh, I don't know. It's hard now to process movies from a time when the the social order and the fabric of our reality was still intact. You know, like a time (laughs) when people of like divergent political viewpoints could like be in marriages and it could just be like, oh, you know, he's a Republican, I'm a Democrat, but we make it work. And not like, oh, like the entire, like the mask has been like ripped off all of like our politics and we we all see like the the consequences of it laid bare on 24 7 news channels all the time and yeah it's just like it it makes me want to uninvent like the internet or something (laughs) (laughs) well i also think that it's a consequence of the strange little bubble of time in which we have mostly grown up samantha and i were born in the i technically i was born in the second to last month of 85 and i think samantha when did you come along in like 87 87 yeah yeah and then like until sadie turned up right before 1997 like i think that maybe being raised by i don't know about y'all's parents but ostensibly straight you know couples in that time like if we had been really exposed to and around like gay people who lived through the late 60s to 80s we might have a lot different view on you know all of that on the 90s (laughs) yeah Yeah. I I have a fondness for that decade that I think bespeaks or that speaks to the sort of privileged circumstances I grew up Mm -hmm. in but like it felt like a moment where it was like Bill Clinton was both a Democrat and a Republican like he was just a very like moderate like right down the middle president and and so it felt like this weird moment where like I don't know like we were truly culturally homogeneous in some way I I could sense hints of like you know um like right-wing radio going ballistic in that time period but otherwise it felt like everyone was just kind of like I don't know (laughs) weird time that I have a nostalgia for but that was probably not actually a, a better time and that if you're like a person of color or gay was not a great time to like be an adult 
with yeah. like the crime bill and DOMA and all that stuff. Like pretty like to my shame now, but I mean, I was a literal child. So I guess, you know, however locked in I was or whatever. But yeah, I really didn't think that the fucking world was ending until like the Iraq war started. And of course, this is right around when I was like preparing to turn 18. So I guess welcome to adulthood. Now you realize that things are super shitty and here we go. <laughs> oh my gosh. We got grim. And now I feel bad for Sadie, who was born like four years before like the world, or at least like our understanding of our own place in the world, just became totally unmoored. Oh, yeah. I understand Gen totally Z chill. a little better now, I think. <laughs> We're all just little jokers. This is how things are. Like... <laughs> I just imagined a tiny Sadie with a little Joker makeup on it. It's the cutest thing I've ever imagined. <laughs> Sadie, what prevents you and your your fellows from just diving like straight on into nihilism? Or are you? What give me the temperature? Be the voice of the generation that you know what you are. What keeps me from diving into nihilism? Rom-coms. <laughs> not to tie it back to this but like that's truly like i listen i watch rom-coms all the day all the time because i i don't know it's like an escapism especially like older rom-coms are just so comforting to me because it's just kind of these chill people just i don't know i can't speak for all of us but at least for me, rom-coms are the the fragile little thread that I'm hanging on to. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. I didn't know that this was this was your last great hope that gives <laughs> that imbues this podcast with even more meaning. There's no one else I would rather be talking about rom-coms with here at this the end of history than with you two. You had this me at true. hello. <laughs> Which I always, for some reason, misremember that line as being from this movie. At the end, I always think that Annie's going to say, you had me at hello, but they don't do that. And it actually is from Jerry Maguire. (laughs) (laughs) So not to get back to the the movie at hand, but... um, Jen, what is your argument for Victoria? I was hoping we would go here. Okay, Victoria was done so wrong. Excuse me one moment. I catch my breath, take a sip. That (laughs) Samantha's um, editing thing will take out, so that should be super immediate. (laughs) Quick sipper. (laughs) Okay, poor Victoria. First of all, I love Victoria's laugh. I found it very charming. I love people with distinctive laughs. I like laughter. Me too. Maybe. I mean, I myself, I felt for her because I am a person who laughs when I am nervous. I also laugh when I am happy or amused or sad because I don't want anybody to know I'm sad or angry, though that could maybe perhaps be more appropriately described as a cackle at those times. But yeah, I love Victoria's laugh. <laughs> That's emotional flowchart is just like <laughs> nine emotions with arrows that all point just to one response. <laughs> <laughs> 
I actually think about this a lot. I don't know where I got the reflex of laughing at everything, but you dear listeners, if you keep up with our podcast, you probably have heard my laugh quite a bit, but oh oh my God. So going back to seeing back before the pandemic started in America this year, well, while our ostensible leadership was aware of it, but we, the populace, were not yet. When I went to see Birds of Prey, yeah, that was the scene that where where the villain, a Roman Sionis, like menaces that lady who's like laughing too loud in an annoying quote unquote way in the club. I was like, oh, there's my death. That's how it's going to happen. Someday some guy is going to like hear me laughing too loudly somewhere and murder me. And that's the end. Probably the end for Victoria too. It would be an honor to be murdered by Ewan McGregor. I mm. I would I would accept death by Ewan. Uh, I don't know. I'll, well, is he wearing his Obi-Wan Kenobi outfit or not? That's mm. my question there. <laughs> because my answer is conditional. <laughs> Which um, which way does it make you go if he is wearing a Jedi robe? Oh, he he better be wearing the fucking Jedi robe if he's going to kill me. If he's <laughs> dressed as Roman Sionis, he can get the fuck right out. It's not happening now. The wardrobe <laughs> is not appropriate. <laughs> Any, anyway, sorry. I feel okay. like I've been derailing you just constantly. <laughs> uh, no, I, w- I guess I was just derailing everything constantly anyway. Just thinking about laughter. That's where that sent me off to. But poor Victoria, she actually met Tom Hanks in this movie in the way that he said he wanted to meet someone organically and Mm -hmm. meet each other and like each other and not be stalked weirdly by somebody across the country. And she endearingly confessed to him up front on their date that she had hoped that he would call her and thought that he was never going to call her and ask her out, you know? And then he very clearly like was not super into her from the start. He was bothered by her laugh and that bothered me about him. If he doesn't like her laugh, he should get the fuck out and let her find somebody else who likes her better. But anyway. Well, again, <laughs> I mean, he he's like standing up for Victoria to jo- like to Jonah. Like he That's true. You know, he's like I I want to know more about her. Like that's why I'm dating her, you know. So Again, I think it's a situation similar to Walter, where it's like, they're not a bad person, but they just might not be the one for them. But I don't think that Jonah necessarily allowed Sam to give Victoria a chance, which I understand, again, he's eight and also has gone through one of the most extreme traumas you can go through as a child. Um, losing a parent. So he's he's valid. He's excused from this. But at the same no, time, I think that we he... We must hold Jonah accountable. <laughs> Is he... For his crimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but he he definitely is the one that kind of stopped things from happening. And a, a scene I want to point out specifically is when they're at the airport and Victoria says, like, maybe we could hang out just you and me for something, right? And then, like, that scene is kind of, like, killing off her character, kind of a character assassination that she's kind of not willing to make the effort to, like... But it was a good idea. But it was a good idea. I don't think that he she should have mentioned it in front of Jonah. Like maybe that was a little, ah, but like, that's a really good idea. I'm not sure why he 
was so adamant on like having Jonah be so involved on these dates. Like that seems like not super healthy on Jonah's side. Like why would you be introducing Jonah so early (laughs) to these people (laughs) that you're dating? Guess what? Second date, you're cooking for me and my boy. We lost (laughs) his mother a year and a half ago. (laughs) Here's some potatoes. Show us something we haven't seen before. We're rice men. (laughs) Yeah, no, she is the best. She's the most level-headed character in the movie. She, we immediately know what her job is because she mentions a firm. Unlike Meg Ryan's character, who I didn't figure out her job until one hour into the movie. I had no idea what she did for work. Maybe that was my failing. Anyway, Victoria is cute as a button. Her laugh is not a deal breaker. And in fact, it kind of seems like Sam is the kind of guy who would like people to laugh at his jokes. And and yet, for some reason, he's annoyed by a woman who laughs at it, maybe because he laughs or she laughs too much. But she just approaches it in such an adult way of like, she likes him, she wants to date him, she'll be introduced to Jonah when the time is right, instead of just silently enduring time with the little third wheel, and then like getting frustrated and then being like, this isn't going to work. She in a very adult way is like, I'm going on this trip. When I come back, maybe we should spend some time together to like deepen our connection. Like she's doing all the right things. And we know that in rom-coms, a character who makes sane, logical decisions that are still emotionally rooted, get out. You have to be just looking (laughs) for signs of the universe, like a paranoid conspiracy theorist at all times, or else you are a loveless shrew, you know? Yeah. And that brings me, okay, so Walter, he wins the award for having been done the worst in this movie by getting dumped on Valentine's Day when he's trying to have a romantic night with his fiance after he had his mother's ring resized to fit her. But Victoria got no picnic that weekend either. She and Tom Hanks were finally gonna get to go on a romantic weekend together and she was gonna get to apparently sleep with this man for the first time. And then instead, his asshole little son catches a flight to New York, necessitates that he last minute abandoned their plans and leave her alone and sexless on Valentine's Day. Damn. (laughs) Also, Victoria has Mariners tickets. Another great, Seattle is a sports town that's going to come in handy. Yeah. Okay. So this was another thing I wanted to bring up. And so what they tried to make unappealing about Walter with his food allergies and his dad jokes, you know, the major work with Victoria was that her laugh is very distinctive and might not be for everyone. That was the, the biggest mark against her. But also the styling did so much work in this, watching it with modern eyes because Victoria was styled in a very, very 1993-ish style. She had the perm, she had the big collars and, you know, sort of weird, I don't even know what to call those, like a dress you would make for like a baby doll dress is its own thing. That's like Courtney Love and Hole and this is not that, but like a dress you would make to put on your American Girl doll in 1993, you know, was most of her wardrobe. Whereas Meg Ryan was also definitely wearing 1993 clothes, but less 
specific to the period. Like she didn't have the perm. She just had long, beautiful, lush hair and was mostly shown in like sweats or in that scene where she was wearing what was supposed to be her grandmother's wedding dress. But it was actually this beautiful, minimalistic, like early 90s Calvin Klein looking thing. You know, she definitely came across that. The styling did a lot of work in making Annie look not completely unhinged as her behavior would otherwise suggest. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Sorry. Wait. Did you, I've been trying to look at the IMDb cast list. Do we have her name right? Oh yeah, no, it is Victoria. She's just really far down on the cast list. But then as I was doing that, I discovered that the little girl Jessica is Gabby Hoffman. What? Hey God, I'm going in there. Gabby Hoffman. Yeah, who you would recognize from like Transparent and I looked up the little boy because because I was trying to see the 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 kid the the little boy got out of acting. Um, Jonah, where are you, Gabby? Oh my God! Yes. Wow. Damn. What? <laughs> She was, oh my God, she was the one in Now and Then. Oh my God, me and my friends. How did we get that on VHS? And I swear it was 1995, it must have been 1996. I had two little friends, Lauren and Kylie, who were my super best friends for that year in fifth grade. And we watched Now and Then on VHS so many times and told each other how this would be us as adults supporting each other too. I'm still friends with Lauren, like sort of very vaguely on Facebook. She sought me out actually a few years ago um, for that reason. And Kylie, I have no fucking clue what happened to her. Was the boy the same boy in You've Got Mail? His like stepson or whatever? Could not tell you. Well, good old IMDB is about to tell us. Anyway, sorry. (laughs) Sorry to take us into the section of the podcast where we all look at IMDB. (laughs) We have to go here sometime. Speaking of, uh, you know, film trivia about it, I appreciate that it was actually filmed in Seattle and I, I had to look it up to ensure that there was no Vancouver in here. And it apparently they considered Vancouver and then we're like, now Seattle. And it's like, oh my God, does like even this movie s- called Sleepless in Seattle was almost filmed in Vancouver. I declare war on Vancouver. I feel like that would just be such a crime. I know that sometimes it's difficult to like film on location, but it still feels like annoying to me whenever movies that are like, like the main point of the movie is that it's set in a place and then it's not set in that place. Yeah, like Love Guaranteed could get away with that a little bit because it wasn't like, oh my God, Seattle plays a huge role in this movie. But uh, if you have it in the name of your movie, I think you should be legally required (laughs) to film 30% of the movie there. I mean, the kissing booths, Hollywood sign, virginity law slot line was really something. Top 10 movies that did not need to be set where they were set. The kissing booth. (laughs) I hate that we've gone back to the kissing booth in this, the sacred space where I finally get to talk about, well, Sleepless in Seattle. (laughs) Did I miss something about her job? Should I have been able to figure out her job earlier than the 57 minute mark? Mm, No, it came up when she first went into work. I mean, but it sort of didn't because she could have just been talking with her coworkers instead of like, also, what is up with, okay, so was 
Rosie O'Donnell, her best friend and also her editor? Yes. <laughs> it seemed like it, okay. yeah. So that, again, sort of a my best friend's wedding, Rupert Everett business there. Like, editors, get yeah. out of your weird, obsessive writer's lives in these movies. Because- yeah, a terrible editor to encourage her to go stock. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and also just like this is another rom-com pet peeve, but this idea that like journalists uh, essentially like have limitless amounts of free time during the day to like, I don't know, fly around the country and Google the man you heard on the radio show and stuff. She apparently yeah. never has to actually file any stories to this newspaper that she works for. It just seems so weird. Like, I don't know if I somehow missed it during my countless views viewings of this movie but it never says like how she's able to use all of these baltimore sun resources like was she lying and saying that she was working for a story like working on a story set in seattle she said she was gonna do a story about one of those radio shows which is about as specific as her pitch got never mind a good (laughs) editor would be like let's be more specific uh what about the radio shows no don't need anything else i thought that it was gonna tie in somehow yeah, that she did write the story and that that was what that that was going to be her reason for introducing herself to Tom Hanks. But instead, she just like legit went there, stalked him, said one word to him and flew away. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> it reminds me of the Amy Schumer rom-com train wreck where like she's ostensibly spending the duration of the movie like writing one story for the magazine about a like a a men's sports doctor like a doctor who works with elite athletes and and we just see her like otherwise just you know having long lunches walking around new york in the middle of the day like all this kind of stuff and it's like no (laughs) like her editor would be like oh also you need to file me a list of like top 10, you know, lip glosses by 5 p.m. today or something, you know, whatever the fuck, like (laughs) garbage filler websites push out these days to try to wring dimes out of advertising. Anyway, I have a digital media axe to grind, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but okay. But I, I mean... I am very much enjoying harshing on this movie and was looking forward to it since I finished watching it like an hour ago. But also, I enjoyed a lot about it. And I must say, Sadie sent a really one of the an iconic text in, to our, our group chat on one of our group chats, I suppose, on all social medias and texting, saying something about the power of the three of us talking about this movie on Bisexual Day of Visibility. (laughs) (laughs) And I've got to say, y'all, like, I knew Meg Ryan was hot. I mean, obviously. But I never realized her eyes were that color until I saw this movie. (laughs) (laughs) The magic of Meg Ryan in this movie. Right? She's incredible. The whole plot hinged on it. That's what Tom Hanks was just rendered speechless by seeing her when she arrived at the airport for the specific purpose of stalking him, but she did not see him there, not expecting to see him there. And then even knowing that this was some fucking creepo who wrote him sight unseen and wanted him to meet uh, on top of the Empire State Building and is standing there 
holding his son's teddy bear like an absolute fucking weirdo. He was just so taken by seeing Meg Ryan at the time this movie was filmed that it it was all okay. They could put her in the outfits from Kate and Leopold in this movie and she would still shine through them. She would burn them off of her like a phoenix rising from the ashes (laughs) of bad wardrobe. (laughs) Like, other than the the brief scene with the wedding dress, I don't remember anything that Meg Ryan wore in this movie because it was just all about her face and her beautiful, enormous amount of hair. I My, like, eternal, lifelong hair goal is just to get my hair... 50% as good as Meg Ryan's hair in this fucking movie. <laughs> it 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 both comforts, inspires and infuriates me whenever I watch it because I want my hair to look like hers and I know that it's physically impossible. Like, she had to be wearing some pieces in this movie, right? Even in that first scene, there is, like, no way a white blonde girl has enough hair to make that, like, tied-in little, like, the tucked-under ponytail thing look as voluminous as it did. Like, God, I mean, how? it's it's about the... F- the the Dutch braid, you know? Oh, the f- oh yes. It fucking... <laughs> I... I... I have vivid memories of being like eight years old and forcing my mom to try to like braid my hair to look like that. And then I would look at the mirror and I would like start crying. I'm like, why doesn't it look like that? And she's like, I'm just doing the best I can, Sadie. (laughs) Do better, mom. I do appreciate a movie set in an age when like not everyone was expected to have like ridiculous amounts of extensions at all times, you know, like you watch these Mm -hmm. movies today and even the like white blonde women look like they have just like full on like lion lion's manes on top of their heads. And it's like, oh, my God, (laughs) people don't make that much hair. It's too much. (laughs) Well, you know, Samantha, I think that both you and I do make that much hair. Just like a third of it falls out of our heads at all time, every given day. Yes, I shed constantly. Corey will find my hair on her like days after seeing me when she like goes out of town or something like that. It is a curse and a blessing that remains to be seen. I I sent you both in the Instagram chat something I wanted to bring up, some local flavor, something that I wanted you to see, which is if you're familiar with the geography of Seattle, the scene where like Sam takes his little kid out on a rowboat and takes him on a little like lunch date. is in it's wild geographically speaking so this is hard to communicate in an audio medium but the route is wild samantha's gonna have to post this map to twitter this is like a longer distance than amy adams and that dude in the sweaters traveled across ireland <laughs> to go to that <laughs> Yeah, that Sam rode his asshole eight-year-old across the, what, what? (laughs) 
so the houseboat is on this lake that's kind of embedded in the middle of the city of Seattle called Lake Union. So he would have to get on his little rowboat, go through this channel that gets all the way to like Puget Sound, which is the big body of water Seattle is on. That X on the map that I sent you, that's the Ballard Locks. It's a boat elevator that changes the water level between the channel and Puget Sound Holy so shit. that your boat oh can God. like adjust. So they would have had to go through the locks that's used by all these like big ships and pleasure yachts and like cargo vessels even on their little dinky rowboat and then fully cross like all of Elliott Bay that Seattle is on to go to Alki Beach in West Seattle to throw a football around for like five seconds and then they have to get in the robot and do it all over again. Oh my God. Is that where Meg Ryan stalked them too also? Yeah. And she was supposedly oh. able to follow them in her car, which if you, if you, cause the filming locations for all of this are like very recognizable if you live here. So like it becomes funny of like, oh wait, no, that bridge doesn't go where it's supposed to. And also like, how are they in West Seattle all of a sudden? Like I thought their houseboat <laughs> was on like, yeah. So they, oh. there's a lot of teleportation and uh, liberties being taken with how the bodies so, of water connected to each other. So I know that you mentioned this before, Samantha, but do you think that it would be possible for me, a single 23 year old girl to afford a houseboat on Lake Union. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Give me an Maybe honest if answer. We, if we all pooled our resources, I think we could afford a like 0.25% down payment on a houseboat <laughs> comparable to the one in this movie and present day Seattle. And then we would have a 300 year mortgage of $2,000 a month. Well, that sounds great. <laughs> well, Let's do it. we're going to need to become vampires, first of all. <laughs> Sadie, you're going to need to get in touch with your contacts with the Cullens or whatever. And How dare then you? Let's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yet another movie that promotes the myth that Seattle is like raining constantly rather than like lightly drizzling much of the time and then having resplendent, beautiful summers. But I guess I don't want too many people to know about the resplendent, beautiful summers, lest the cost of living here go up even further than it already has. <laughs> Stay away from Seattle is my my takeaway from Sleepless in Seattle. Don't come here. I could come here because I get to, but don't, if you listen to this, stop. Don't do it. I found a two-bed, one-bath for a perfectly affordable $1.3 million. <laughs> <laughs> so if one of us just lives on the deck outside, <laughs> then that would be great. And it would only be like 400 a person. <laughs> 400,000 a person. <laughs> <sighs> I hope his architecture business is doing well for him to afford the property taxes on on his $2 million houseboat today. But I also don't know where any of these characters would be 30 years later. At least they gave him 
a job that I could kind of see him being able to live in the house that he lives in, assuming he's a very successful architect. Yeah, yeah. when she Googled him, it said he like had made City Plaza somewhere, something like yeah. that. So it seems like he's 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 a big deal. I hate when it's stuff where it's like, this guy is an artist who only paints on empty cereal boxes. And <laughs> and he lives in this gorgeous New York Manhattan high-rise apartment. Yeah. <laughs> like, who are his parents? Like, mm-hmm. what is our family vibe going on here? Uh, I gotta well, say, I did appreciate also that they brought her family into it, at least a little bit at the beginning, uh-huh. you know? Because in so many of these movies, and, and you know, to fit it into the time frame, obviously, then it's kind of a romance novel thing as well. Like, sometimes the families get, or, and, and Tom Hanks' family, other than little asshole Jonah, got completely, like, hacked out of the picture. Like, I I guess he has no living relatives or something, but I liked the extraordinarily complicated family vibe with her people at the beginning. Nora Ephron really likes moms. She like seems to have a very healthy relationship with maternal characters between this and like, you've got male. It's like maybe rare to see just like a character in a movie. Who's just like, I love my mom. I, I like her wedding dress. Thank you for your advice. Right. Even though her mom did inadvertently send her off upon this adventure in stalking through a chance (laughs) remark. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's what moms do. Do they not? I mean, true. (laughs) Jen, I agree with your assessment that Jonah is probably like kind of like a catty queen. Maybe he and Jessica date in high school. Jessica helps him come out like, I, that seems clear. Walter and Victoria, I hope they can get together. David Hyde Pierce, I hope he comes out too. And I don't, I'm not optimistic about the long-term prospects for Sam and Annie, but that's my 30-year prognosis for Sleepless in Seattle. I like to choose that there's this wild, madcap, funny little romance, moving in, figuring out where they're going to live, because that's a big issue. Madcap movie that happens on the other side of the credits, but I don't want to know more about it. I don't want to think too hard about the details. (laughs) (laughs) Part of the magic of this is that it lives so outside of the bounds of reality and like what normal people would choose that I don't even, I can't even comprehend what would happen after they get out of the elevator. Some things are better left mysterious. And well, with that, apparently, rank? Oh. almost, I have, Sadie, I have a new thing. I'm Other ready. than just oversharing about my own personal history on this podcast, over uh, uh, by the time we reached our 30th episode, apparently my new thing is just parroting what my partner said when he walked into the room at the very end of the movie, having seen none of it. And I had to rapidly summarize. Justin hadn't seen this movie either? No, no. We were both absolute news. You uncultured fools. (laughs) (laughs) And what Justin walked in and said once he realized that this was the first time that they met each other, because he assumed that it was the first 15 minutes of the movie. But no, it was the very end when she said, nice to meet you. And he was like, so where's the follow up where they have sex for the first time and realize they were totally incompatible and it was terrible. Terrible, and then it's over. And so I guess that was his dour post credit scene. But you know, nothing is guaranteed for yeah, our people here. I, I just think. <laughs> I was like, 
actually that was a terrible day. It's going to raining. <laughs> I actually really did enjoy watching this movie, Sadie. So <laughs> <laughs> she's gonna get in the elevator with him and be like, "You're Tom Hanks. You're the one leading a child pedophile ring that harnesses adrenaline from children, right?" And he's gonna be like, "Oh my god, a Q and honor, another Q and honor. I should <laughs> never." <laughs> date blonde white women (laughs) (laughs) anyway Sadie I'm ready to rate when you are okay well I'll just say really quick because I'm sure that you were all expecting it I'm giving it five slices of tiramisu whatever that is (laughs) out of five this is one of my favorite movies it's it's another thing that like yeah I've seen it so many times and I hold it so close to my heart that in a lot of ways it's kind of hard to see like the objective side of like whether this is actually a good movie or not but I love this movie I think the writing is so smart and I love the the times when the characters are with their friends I love the times when the characters are are by themselves I love the scene when Annie's driving home on Christmas Eve and she first here's Sam I think that that's it's such a it's so good and it's such a comforting movie to me so yeah I love the magic of it and I love the the fantasy of like finding someone through the radio show that you're just meant to be with I love it I first a point of clarification since we've dumped on Jonah so much I was raised in a religion (laughs) that taught us that children could know the difference from between right and wrong at age eight which is a huge onus to place on children especially because our frontal lobes don't even like you know turn into semi-hard plastic until we're in our mid-20s. So uh, Jonah is a nightmare, but that's okay because he's a child. (laughs) So be childed (laughs) listeners out there, be calm. Uh, Especially my most beloved listener, my sister, who is the mother to my adorable nephew. Also her son, but more importantly, she's the mother of my nephew. Um, (laughs) I give Sleepless in Seattle four out of five space needles and I dock it one space needle because the climax of this movie should have been on the space needle. You have an iconic piece of architecture. He's an architect. It's stunning architecture. It's set in Seattle. Meet on top of the space needle, please. For the love of God, have have one rom-com not be about how New York is so romantic and let another city be romantic for once. That's a good point. Honestly, in the those final scenes are on the Empire State Building. And again, this is just a very 2020 perspective of seeing this for the first time. I was watching the big aerial pan around the Empire State Building and being like, wow, they didn't even have drones then. Like somebody flew a fucking helicopter up to do this. I think that was a matte painting in, really? in the final part. But they did do a helicopter yes. shot when Jonah was like looking around. Around. Yeah, and when I too he noticed was up that there. And That's what like, I'm thinking fuck about. Drone photography, like it's ruined everything because the helicopter <laughs> shot felt so much more cinematic and beautiful, and less like like a music video some club promoter was making on a weekend in Miami. You know. Yeah. Well, I give this movie three out of five Rita Wilson playing the concerned acquaintance of Tom Hanks who worries that he will not know how to make juice because they are spouses in real life. And I enjoyed that greatly. And another point, honestly, for that fucking devastating potato insult. I know I'm, again, harshing a lot (laughs) on eight-year-old Jonah here, but he 
had great dialogue and I am sure that he would be a person who I would very much enjoy in my life, probably not as a romantic partner, but as a friend once he is an adult, as he and I are close to the same age. So that's a four out of five total. So three, four, five, we did it. And this was our 30th episode. Incredible. Who would have thought that we could have made it this this long? <laughs> Without killing each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, if Sadie could have traveled, she might have tried following our leap year episode early on. <laughs> I start in Tennessee. I hop over to Washington. <laughs> Speaking of Tennessee, I was so excited that Knoxville got a shout out in this movie. I think, wasn't Knoxville also mentioned in like one of our other movies we watched? Did I get that? Just completely could no. I think I got that conflated with reading um, Mark Lanigan's autobiography of his heroin addicted years earlier this year. But Knoxville, Tennessee, not that far away from me. You only have to drive like an hour and a half to get there. While we're in a semi <laughs> chatty post-show kind of mood, I do want to acknowledge our listener, Andrew, sending us uh, a lengthy explanation of how the House of Lords works, because we just kind of waved that whole process away in covering an <laughs> ideal husband with no research. And I want to say, I read the thread, I still don't understand, and I don't want to understand. <laughs> <laughs> I feel about it the way Sadie feels about the Eurovision Song Contest. I'm just like, okay, cool, whatever, I guess. <laughs> you think it's fictional? Like, ultimately, the entire British political system? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I forgot. No, wait. Sadie knew Eurovision was real, right? No, it was I, your sister, right? Who? Yeah, it was my sister who didn't know that it was a real also, contest. we love you, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> but Andrew, seriously, the House of Lords sounds wild. It's uh, it sounds like a reality TV show. I I a nobody in the m- middle of Missouri do not condone it. <laughs> I would like it to end now, please. I'm formally requesting it as a person of high importance, i.e. a person that lives in the middle of Missouri, America, USA. (laughs) Sadie, the voice of Gen Z, the voice of Missouri, the The voice voice of of America. Yes. (laughs) I would would say if I were being bold. Sadie, no one's going to listen to you unless you dance and you point at text bubbles while dancing that explains why the House of Lords is problematic, you know? Are you encouraging me to become a TikToker? (laughs) A TikTok influencer. (laughs) Does it? (laughs) And you're like social justice but about like really obscure stuff. Like, here's why we need to dismantle the House of Lords. Here's the number for the queen call her today so sadie has like one week to become a tiktok star to abolish the british government before (laughs) our own system of government bans tiktok from our apps here in the united states i'm already sweating So, Sadie, your mission is set out for you. If Thank you, you can't Chef. Destroy Britain through the power of dance. <laughs> you failed us. If I can, then who can? They seem to be pretty good at destroying themselves lately, just like us. Oh, Anglophone wow. countries handshaking. <laughs> oh, we're being terrible. 
<laughs> mutually assured self-destruction. Someday <laughs> the alien society that finds like somehow these recordings of you should see the other guy are going to last and no other podcast will exist. And they'll be like, what were people doing while their entire civilization was falling apart and they were trying to cope? And here will be the answer in our <laughs> recordings. <laughs> I think that you could I think that you could use these 30 hours of podcasts as like a pretty substantive document tracing the decline of the 21st century. We've covered a wide range of topics here. We talk about it all. Rom-coms, white nationalism, TikTok, the pandemic. We started like right before the pandemic. Isn't that wild to think about? This is essentially a diary into into a look into the diaries of three bisexual women across the country <laughs> as they yes. descend into despair <laughs> and rom coms become the only thing keeping them alive. <laughs> I thought the pandemic would be over by episode fifteen, and now here we are, and it's like no. It will be going on forever. I thought the pandemic was only going to hit major coastal cities. Like the third episode that we recorded of this podcast, even before Samantha put them out for people to listen to, we had to postpone recording by one day because I went to a concert and I thought that this would be a regular thing I would be doing throughout the year. Oh, the universe had to nerf you. <laughs> it fucking did. City, have you seen that Ooh. Anne Hathaway is going to be in a pandemic rom-com? <gasps> I have. I'm... <laughs> this is news to me. I do not know how to feel. I also... Wasn't there also that like ABC Family one or something like that? Or Freeform or whatever it's called now? I don't like it. I don't want coronavirus movies, especially yeah. coronavirus rom-coms. I want this to just be a blip that no one addresses or talks about in any media. <laughs> and then like insultingly in almost a hundred years, somebody makes a really like whack-ass Mormon vampire property that has coronavirus be the origin story for the vampire <laughs> Or like a novel where like they time travel, but like, you know, like those, like I time traveled to like to the Titanic, but it's like I time traveled to the height of the COVID <laughs> pandemic. Oh, shit. I just know it's going to be used as like little details, even if there aren't that many overt coronavirus movies, that there's going to be like, oh, we'll do a flashback and we'll see these two characters like wearing masks together or something like that. Like, I feel like it's going to become like a, a weird like reference point to immediately situate you in a time because as a filmmaker, it does give you a great visual way to immediately say this was the year 2020 because any shot of the outside is going to have a billion people either wearing masks or with masks uh, dangling uh, awkwardly around their necks, collecting sweat, which is what is happening to my masks when I'm (laughs) six feet away from people outside. Oh, well, (laughs) dear listeners, we love you and are happy you have gone on this journey with us. Thank you for sticking with us. We assume that all of you, of course, are listening to 
all of these podcasts, every episode to attain your chance at immortality that Samantha <laughs> promised like an episode or so ago. <laughs> if you, if you, if you much like Annie are listening to this episode now alone on the drive home somewhere, maybe it's Christmas Eve, maybe you're going through the backlog. <laughs> I hope you're well. <laughs> I hope hope you don't end up falling in love with some man on the radio after this podcast ends. But if you do, then Godspeed. Surely they've fallen in love with us. Surely each of us right now has like, you know, 300 people spying and Googling each of us because they just (laughs) hear us talking and they're like, we love these charming rom-com podcast co-hosts. But I would tell them, I would tell actually all of you who definitely absolutely are in love with all or two or one of us, depending on your scenario, (laughs) (laughs) to follow us at YSSTOG on Twitter and to tweet at us there. Also, you can write to our Gmail, which what is it, Sadie? Y-S-S-T-O-G podcast at gmail.com. Which we don't check that one as often, but (laughs) when we do, we are so, so flattered and excited to get an email (laughs) that you will really make an impression. So yeah, but anyway, if you're in love with us, you probably should just talk to us because we're really nice and we'll talk back to you because we're all just bored people on the internet. Subscribe. Trying to survive this, this, this pandemic life, baby. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. And uh, I don't think you can rate on Spotify, but rate on Apple Podcasts, write a review in the weird algorithmic nightmare that we live in that helps more listeners find the podcast so that you'll be less alone as you sit there and listen and form a parasocial relationship with us and fall in love with us from across the country. And if you're engaged, also break off your engagement for us. would go that far and that's it (laughs) but i would say i mean carry on that baby we don't even i I don't know how to carry on a parasocial relationship because if you talk to me online i will talk back unless (laughs) you are a creepy asshole obviously in which case if you find yourself blocked then you'll know something you should take to therapy yes but please don't actually stalk us just write nice things about our podcast (laughs) You can stalk me. (laughs) Okay, wow. If you fall in love with Sadie, please send an application to Samantha and me for approval first, and then we will let you talk to Sadie. (laughs) See, Jen, I just like the idea that you can't have a, you can't be the apex of a parasocial thing because you immediately just make it symmetrical. Like, you're just like, hey, hi, what's up? (laughs) (laughs) Samantha, it's true. You would be a bad TikToker, and Sadie would be a great TikToker. Get on it, Sadie. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm <laughs> Things are a little different now. First, you have to be friends. You have to like each other. Then your neck. This could go on for years. Then you have tests, and then you get to do it with a condom. <laughs>